Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 224 for November 26, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 80. Security Now is brought to you by Go to My PC. Do you think remote access to your PC is complicated? Think again. It's easy with GoToMyPC for your free 30-day trial. Visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. And by the new voice-activated sync, featuring hands-free calling, music search, and turn-by-turn navigation. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details and to enter to win a free Nano or Zune, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about security with us, Steve Gibson, as always, the man behind GRC.com, the discoverer of spyware, the man who coined the term spyware, author of SpinWrite, the great uh, hard drive maintenance utility, and a lot of security utilities like Shields Shields Up and, and more. Hey, Steve, it's good to see you. Hey, Leo, it's great to be with you again, as always. Happy Thanksgiving week. And, and thank you. And, you know, I think you're right. I think if someone listened to this podcast... Um, constantly and thought about it, they probably do over time get everything they need to know about security. We really do cover the bases. And, you know, it doesn't happen over a short period of time. But, you know, I mean, I, we, I keep hearing from people who write, uh, they, they go to grc.com slash feedback and send me their thoughts. And they're saying, wow, you know, I'm like my whole group's security guru now. Thanks for listening to you guys. <laughs> That's for- fantastic couple of years That's so yeah fantastic yeah i mean i think you get that we get we, we 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 added security news a couple of years ago and i think so that way you at least you know what's what's breaking security news we've been doing q and a's now this is our 80th so that's yep. a couple of years we've been doing that um and so that covers a lot of bases and of course you get these great lectures where you understand like last week where you really understand ssl um those are very valuable and i think you're right cumulatively i don't know i think there's nothing we haven't covered at this point <laughs> from crypto to uh ssl to uh, hacks to o- buffer overflows social exploits yeah yeah it's you bet well let's get our uh, security news and our errata in a second and then uh, we'll get to the q a we've got some great questions from our audience but before we do that i want to want to mention uh, our friends that go to my pc the citrix folks who do such a great job with remote access, such a great job that, in fact, Microsoft uses them, licensed uh, Citrix remote access for its own remote desktop protocol. But they've got a consumer-grade version that is easy to use. And I know sometimes when I say remote access, people, if they've had experience with other products, that go, oh, no, that's, that's too difficult for me. That's too tricky for me. Not nah, go to my PC. In fact, you can install it right now. You don't have to configure the firewall. Routers don't get in the way because it uses NAT traversal. So it's 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 seamless. It's very easy to install. Just go to go to mypc.com slash security now. You can do it for free for 30 days. Go to mypc.com slash security now. By the time I'm done talking, you'll have it installed. It's that easy. It just takes a minute or two. And then anytime you want to access that computer, you go to the website, go to mypc.com, whether you're at an internet cafe, at home, on the road, at a hotel, you'll get an SSL connection to the website, go to mypc.com. 
you you log in with your username and password, and then it connects you to your computer. It kind of handles the transaction. That's how they get around the firewalls. Both are outbound connections. Now you've got a connection, a 128-bit SSL connection to your computer. It's like a VPN. You can surf safely. You can open email, read it, send it, because you're doing it all on your computer, not your remote computer. You see what I'm saying? You're, even if you're in a sketchy Internet cafe, that protected traffic, there's no snooping going on unless they're looking over your shoulder. I, t- I love go to my PC. We use it all the time around here, and I want you to try it free for 30 days. Go to gotomypc.com slash security now. Just take, take my little challenge. You say, oh, it's too hard, too complicated. Just take my challenge. Just install it. You'll be amazed how easy it is. And then it's ready to use for the next 30 days. Absolutely free. Good time for the holidays. You get to use it almost to the new year. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of the Security Now program. So what's been going on in the world of security since we talked last? Well, we got our regular cast of characters. Actually, sort of a... Uh, yeah, so it's pretty much the same sort of stuff. Um, a number of listeners um, wrote uh, about a story which uh, I had run across also, so I thought I would bring it up. This was where um, the some people from the NSA were testifying in Congress um, about security things and happened to mention that they had worked with Microsoft on hardening of the security of Windows 7. Well, of course, this upset some people who are mistrustful of the government and specifically the NSA. You may remember that there was a coincidental acronym collision in part of Windows where there was something that if you looked at the binary code of Windows some years ago, you could see NSA key was the um, I mean, and it stood for something completely different <laughs> from national security. Uh, is it association? Uh, national? No, no. That would be a, a, a professional group. The National NSA. Security Agency. Agency. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, so, uh, so anyway, it turns out that the NSA has been helping Microsoft, but also Apple and Sun oh, and Red Hat. Huh. And and what they've been doing mostly is just sort of working with them on best practices. Uh, the idea of you know making sure that things are bolted down and turned off. I think that probably the companies you know are saying, hey, if we have, is there anything you guys know about that you know that hasn't occurred to us that would help us make our operating systems safer? So it's not like the NSA is creating you know code or writing blobs of these operating systems that they're then secretly handing to the companies to install let's hope not well yes and the concern is that you know this mistrust the conspiracy theories that people um, well it's not just a theory they were spying on us through the phone companies so that's true there have been we know they have some interests in our uh, activities yeah um again my sense is though that with with the kind of scrutiny our operating systems get, where we've got you know packet captures going on, we have, I mean we have such a community now of security concern surrounding these. It's not like any of this is being done without anyone watching. I mean, everyone is watching. Right. So uh, I'd be really skeptical whether you know any packets could be playing games 
um, without being seen. It'd be but, hard to do these days, yeah. But I did want to acknowledge the people that, that, that wrote in saying, hey, Steve, did you see this article or this news? What do you think of it? I mean, it to me, it looks very benign. I mean, I'm probably less prone to conspiracy theorizing than most, so maybe I'm being naive, but to me, it looks completely benign. Microsoft says there's no back door. Right. Um, also, the continuing uh, saga of the iPhone jailbroken worms, and it's very plural now. I don't know whether you saw this, Leo, but there are some, now we're seeing the rapid emergence of very bad worms, which are taking advantage of this default password in the SSH server that the jailbreaking installs in iPhones. Um, there is now one which is actively stealing banking data mm. and enlisting the iPhones into a botnet. Wow. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a worm targeting jailbreaking phones, which steals online. It's designed to steal online banking login credentials. So it's looking for those. Um, it changes the iPhone's password after it gets in so nothing else can get in connects to a command and control server in Lithuania to download additional files and data and to send back the information that it has stolen from the phone uh, and uh, ties the iPhone into a botnet. So, you know, this quickly went from, you know, some fun and games in Australia a couple weeks ago where, as you remember, some random photo was changed on people's backgrounds um the the desktop of their iphone into now something which is you know seriously bad Not so good. um you know this is a problem with anything that is as intimately connected into a network i mean we've certainly seen i mean this is the why we have the security problems we have with windows and and all pcs now to varying degrees is that they're part of a big network well Phones are, are computers that are becoming increasingly powerful and open and part of a big network. So that creates this opportunity. Um, we've got all versions of IE have various types of problems. Um, starting with the most recent IE, IE8, has a strange problem that's been found in in Microsoft's own attempt to prevent the problem. Oh, boy. There's something called, and we, we, we've talked about cross-site scripting. There's, in order to prevent cross-site scripting, one of the things you do is so-called output encoding. That is, you, for example, in, in sites where you allow users to submit their own content, um, you... You, for example, you don't want to allow a user to submit an, a, a, a less than sign or a greater than sign because that allows you to bracket some keywords like, you know, an href, a link reference or, or to invoke scripting or, or play other games. The idea being that when what you submit is then presented to a, to a different user by the browser, the browser that's outputting this will see those brackets, the angle brackets, and say, oh, this is some HTML. And it will render that text that, that, that somebody else, a, a malicious user, put up as 
HTML interpreting it on the fly. So, so to prevent that, the it's possible to do so-called output encoding so that so that dangerous things that are submitted will not be presented back to the browser in their in their same dangerous form. So Microsoft has a, a cross-site scripting filter in IE8. Apparently, they did it wrong. Huh. And what's happened is there are now proofs of concept and it's been shown and Microsoft has acknowledged that it is possible to trick their filter so that the filter which is trying to prevent the problem actually creates the problem. So some clever hackers figured out a way to give the filter something to filter which would cause it to do do what it was designed to prevent. Now, it's what's interesting is that there's a way to turn this off. If a web page is 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 presented with a header from the server which is serving the page, which is x hyphen xss hyphen protection colon zero, that is cross site protection zero, that disables IE8's filter. Well, interestingly, Google knows about this, is aware that there are problems, and in a formal statement from a spokesman said, we're aware, uh, when asked why their servers were serving this Hmm. cross-site scripting protection colon zero header to turn this off in IE8, their spokesman said, we're aware of a significant flaw affecting the cross-site scripting filter in IE8. And we've taken steps to help protect our That's users amazing. by disabling the mechanism on our properties until a fix has been released. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. This is just getting That's, crazy. So when I surf to a website on Google, where well, where they've got active content and they're trying to protect themselves, what they're doing is they've added that header to their otherwise endangered pages so that IE8 won't perform this protection. I see. And see, they see, and and essentially, IE8 is trying to do this on behalf of webmasters who haven't properly output encoded their pages. So this 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 allows IE8 to protect the website on behalf of the website owners. Well, Google is is smart enough to be, they feel, to be doing the output encoding properly, the output encoding protection themselves. So they, so this is really not providing Google with any benefit. And in fact, it turns out, due to a flaw in the way Microsoft did this, it's, it's creating a danger where one doesn't exist in the case of Google's wild. sites. So it's intended to do, to do good. It does bad. So Google says, ah, We'll, we'll do turn no that evil. off. We'll, so, we'll turn that off. So, other webmasters might do the same. Could consider doing the same thing. Then, well, they could as long as they're as long as they they're very sure ah. that they prevented these problems themselves in I the mean, first place. In right. general, it's probably because this is a specific way of tripping it up, and because it only works under IE8, 
it's like, well, you know, it's probably doing more good than harm for most webmasters by by helping them to eliminate cross cross site scripting problems. But in the case of a webmaster who really knows what they're doing, they'd probably want to turn this off just to prevent their site from being abused in this way. Can I point out something? Oh, yeah. If I were a hacker and I had a cross-site scripting exploit on my web page, I'd make sure to turn off cross-site scripting protection uh-huh. <laughs> when IEA came to my page. So if it's known how to disable this protection, what kind of protection is that? Yeah. Am I missing something? Well, it's that the 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 bad guy... The the bad guy who has the server ah because of the nature cross site scripting I have to take advantage of somebody else exactly I see so it doesn't matter if I issue it for my page exactly because you have con- complete control of your page got you it, can it, present the your visitors with any okay. kind of malicious content okay. you want to the idea is 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 tricking other sites like right. Facebook or MySpace and, and and so forth to present text that they weren't designed that they were designed to disallow right. pre- um, presenting and i should underscore that uh, which you've said before that no script prevents scr- cross-site scripting so if you're using first of all you're not vulnerable if you're using firefox in the first place but no script is a very good uh, even uh, you know even if you don't use don't tell steve when you, <laughs> when you turn off the javascript stuff it still prevents well, cross-site scripting we also have uh exactly that advice recommended for a new zero-day flaw oh, no. that is in both IE6 and IE7. Um, some raw code was posted to a security blog to demo this under an alias. So no one really knows who posted it. But a number of security firms tried running this code and it immediately crashes IE6 and 7. And it has been shown that it can also be used to run explicit code remotely um it's it's a it's a an abuse of the get elements by tag name javascript method so it's a it's a method in javascript in microsoft's html dll it's ms html.dll um it microsoft has no patch for it they've acknowledged it and their recommendation is <clears throat> Disable JavaScript. <laughs> Not surprisingly. Okay. So once again, yes, no script would prevent that from being exploited. I would imagine, you know, the second Tuesday of December, we'll probably be talking to our listeners about a fix for this this problem in MSHTML, the get elements by tag name JavaScript exploit, which probably by then will be in active use. So, you know, selectively enabling JavaScript I think is still uh, the best policy. Yeah. And finally, Opera is a little bit late to the game, but better late than never. Um, several weeks ago, we talked about this uh, a buffer overflow in a, in a commonly used C language numeric conversion, the D to A conversion function. Um, Opera has finally updated their browser to version 10.10. So any Opera users out there, um, make sure that you're running 10.10 and you'll get uh, the benefit of that fix. 10.10, okay. And lastly, uh, that takes care of security stuff. I wanted to mention in errata, uh, 
I am for all of our listeners that that really appreciated the extra special and some thought bizarre vitamin D episode we did. I'm getting I'm getting a flood of questions from people who have wanted to know they want an update they want to know what's going on they're sending me articles and links and and all kinds of things um i've been deliberately mute on the topic because i have really wanted to respect the security now nature of this podcast and not confuse the two um so um leo you've agreed to do with me a special podcast from time to time on my findings in my own little sort of hobby of health. And so I wanted to tell our listeners that before long, um, we're going to do another one, which will follow up some on vitamin D, but also talk about my next breakthrough for myself. Um, uh, I'm waiting. uh, The reason I'm delaying it is that I'm waiting still on some results that will take longer to happen um, but uh, I have some exciting news uh, on a different front that I want to share that I think a lot of people will find very interesting. I'll, I'll say more when, we, when that is in the can and we can point people at it. Uh, uh, at it. Okay, and I'll get the lawyers working on the disclaimer. <laughs> yes, we're not doctors. We're not <laughs> trained medical professionals. I'm just a, a health hobbyist, but I, I have some interesting additional news and and something else i think people will will really find very interesting excellent um and a short note on on my something that's near and dear to me personally and that is of course spinrite the the subject from uh, darren wigley uh was thank you times a thousand <laughs> and he see he just said very briefly he said please know that this software totally bailed me out of a bad situation. At least it was not life-threatening. He said, until recently, I kept a lot of priceless homemade videos on an external drive. As bad luck would have it, that drive died, and all my movies, I thought, were gone. I purchased and downloaded Spinrite 6 and didn't have much hope. But then, out of the blue, all my data came home to me. Thank you so much for creating this wonderful software. Crappy software is certainly out there, but th- but it is not this by a long shot. I only hope that others find this great software. I know I will be recommending it. Much success to you in the future, and keep up the good work, DMW. So thanks, Darren, for sharing uh, your testimonial about Spinrut. I really appreciate it. Very good, very good. We're going to get to our questions. We've got some great ones from our audience. Before we do, though, I just want to mention... Uh, Ford Sync, our sponsor. Uh, I've been talking a little bit about Ford Sync. I hope by now you've kind of heard the message that Ford Sync is the amazing voice-activated, hands-free Bluetooth uh, phone and, you know, control my stereo and give me information feature in uh, all uh, many new Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury automobiles. I have one in my new uh, car, my new Ford Mustang, and I am just blown away by Ford Sync. I wish there were a way that you could add it to your car after the fact, but you can't. So you just got to go to your Ford dealer and check it out. Um, I can tell it things like, you know, uh, well, first of all, I can connect up to 25 phones and you get to choose which phone is your primary. If, if you know, I hate to talk about bad things, but if you have an accident and your airbags are deployed, uh, 
Fort Sink calls 911 for you, calls a regional 911, uses the one that's on your cell phone. And uh, and many 911s can actually uh, handle GPS coordinates, so it will say, this is Ford Sync, airbags have been deployed, here are the GPS coordinates, so emergency vehicles can get you right away. You can override it, but it will also let you talk then. So if you're you know pinned in your car, Ford's done the dialing, and you can say, yeah, I'm, I'm trapped here, or whatever. Or you could say, no, I'm fine, sorry about that, never mind. Or you could just belay the call to begin with. I mean, it's just one of many, many great features. I, uh, whenever I get in the car, I'm listening to an audio book. It picks up where we left off. And, and, and when I get out of the car, it stops. Very patient. And next time I get back in, I continue on with the audio book. Uh, you can say, play the Beatles. If you've got any device that can plug into the USB. I mean, it works with a Zune, an iPod. It works with my uh, Droid. It works with any... It'll even work with a USB thumb drive if it's got MP3s on it with tagging. You just, you just plug it in. And the sync will index it, and then from then on, you can call for songs by name, by artist, by you could say more of that. I want more similar. I just, I just love it. It's a, it's a smart car. It really is. If you want to read more about it, go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com. That's the Ford Sync site. And when you're there, you'll see you can win an iPod or Zoom. They're giving away 15 between now and December 9th, 2009. All you have to do is tweet with the hashtag. Pound Sync My Ride Podcast. S-Y-N-C. Pound Sync My Ride Podcast. You know, you could say, hey, listen to Security Now with Steve and Leo. And by the way, Pound Sync My Ride Podcast. The Ford uh, folks will pick up your uh, tweet and say, great, we're entering you in the drawing and you're in. And uh, it, it, you could see we had quite a few winners. And in fact, a number of winners who are listening to the show because I've gotten some email. So please give yourself a chance to win a free nano or zune and find out more about ford sync go to sync my ride podcast.com i uh, i i spend more time, i don't know if this is a good thing but i spend more time in my car than ever before because i love just I, you know it's great for music you can get sports scores you can get fantasy play-by-play you can even say listen to security now i have security now on my ipod and it plays it and Amazing. it's a cool gadget to play with, it's too. A, it's so cool. When people get yeah. in the car with me, I will, you know, I'll do little demos. I'll go, eh. You never take what your I'm... hands off the wheel or your eyes off the road, by the way. You just press the button. He goes, don't go. I say, play the Beatles. And the Beatles start playing, and people are like, what? <laughs> Did that happen? <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite shows is Fringe, which yes. is, you know, and, and Ford is a sponsor, and they, they did a little interstitial uh, sync ad in the show where... Um, Livia got into the car and and used her voice recognition. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, oh, okay, I know what that's all about. From, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. I have to. I have to watch it. That was last week, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to watch that. Wow. Wow, really cool. So uh, I have the questions. If you have the answers, Mister G. Indeed, I forgot to ask you one thing. The yes. Very, so we'll have to make a note to edit, edit this out. Um, the, there's a, a link to a short story in the, la, in the last question of the week that I think is, is it's very short, and you should probably read that as you know, like following in through the question. So yes, no problem. Just Okay, cool. Got it. Question one. Drew in Virginia Beach, VA. He wonders about old codes. Steve, I love the show. Insert normal kudos. Hoo-hahs, etc. You and Leo is great. Spin is awesome. I'll refer you back to episode 221, my friend, where you were saying that old code is better code. 
But if you recall several episodes earlier, you went into detail about how a voting machine, secure in its day, could now be hacked due to improvements over time. Seems to me this is a case where a new security hole was created by its age, since I think you said the ability to find the hole was due to 20 years of advances. Because code, finally able to be stress-tested, showed flaws not initially known, doesn't this say old code isn't better, just more abandoned? <laughs> just a thought. Hope to hear your response, Drew. Well, I, wa- I wanted to, to put this question in as a, also as a proxy for all the people who wrote. It's, it's interesting. I guess this is sort of a little bit of a religious issue, you know, religious in the sense of what one believes that sort of... It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Um, And I don't, I wanted to say, I don't know that there's really a right answer. There's, it's certainly the case that, that, that code can be written to be incredibly bulletproof, but to do so is incredibly expensive i i look at the code that is used to run the shuttle the the you know nasa shuttle project and the amount of reviewing and testing and debugging that they do makes that the most expensive code per byte that i mean it's just it's an it's orders of magnitude more expensive but it has to be correct so it is possible to create correct code. It's just excruciatingly expensive. I mean, it's, it's uneconomical unless the cost of a mistake is, you know, people dying in outer space. So we don't have code typically that is written that well because it's too expensive. It's, I mean, I, I'm reminded, remember the, the horrible story with the Pinto uh, with, with the bad gas tank, where um, where it, it was found that if if a, if you rear-ended a Pinto, that gas tank had a high op- you know high likelihood of exploding, and it turned out that the manufacturer knew about that, but they made the decision that well, so, a certain number of them are going to have that problem, and we'll we'll make restitution for those problems but that's that makes more sense than recalling all the pintos that have been sold i mean it was it was it was an economic an economic calculation that was hard to understand but that's the one they made and and similarly it's you know everyone wants code to be bug free but it's so difficult to make that happen it's just it's not economical so in practice what happens and this is what we spend so much time on this show looking at in detail, you know, dicing and parsing is that code is launched with problems. And in fact, I remember, I haven't seen this for a long time, so I don't know if Microsoft is still doing it, but, and I'm sure you'll remember, Leo, remember those days when we could see, we would see there, there were public bug lists of known problems in newly released versions of Windows. And I mean, it was like 50,000 problems, right. but it was like you'd read them and you just kind of, oh my goodness, this is what they're, they've released. It's like, yes, but it only, this is only going to affect people whose first name begins with F and live in Tampa on odd Thursdays of a full moon. I mean, it was just unlikely things to happen. They know it's there, but oh, well, we didn't get around to fixing it because 
we promised everyone we were going to ship this thing, you know, in the same year as the operating system was named and it was getting near Christmas. So we really had no choice. So, so what Microsoft does is, well, I'm sorry, what everybody does is pretty much do the best job they can and figure that, well, as problems arise, we'll fix them incrementally. Well, what that means is that this, as long as you stop adding new things, if all you do is fix problems and you fix them carefully so that your fixes don't in- induce new problems, and that's one thing we do see also. We often see fixes creating new problems, but if you're really careful, then 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 in theory, older code that is allowed to become more bulletproof over time. And if you, can, if you can then stop messing with it, if you can stop adding things to it, it has a chance to get better. But it's also the case that people can make more, more problems than they're fixing, or they can stop messing around with it and cause more problems. So again, I, I completely um, recognize that there's there are many ways to look at this maybe there isn't an answer maybe it's not possible to say old code is better than new code um i, I like to think that that systems which have which have been around a while that have been maintained well and carefully are are if nothing else they're a known quantity whereas from a security standpoint whereas anything new is I think fundamentally more dangerous. I think I think that I can state with some reason to have some authority. Okay. I think it, I think you're I think there's problems on both sides. <laughs> Nothing's perfect. There, yes, there are problems with both sides, but if nothing else, something which has been around is a known quantity, and I right. guess that's really I guess the devil, that's better more, the devil you know than the than the devil you don't know. From a security standpoint, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you know, I I, I can stand behind that representation. Yeah. Um, and following along the same lines, we got one from an anonymous listener who says, "Is old code really better than new code?" After four plus years of listening, it's apparent you favor old over new because you think the problems are discovered, known, and perhaps even fixed. Being a software guy myself who started programming on the original PC and assembler, then spending the rest of the 80s and 90s at Lotus working on 123 and others, I can understand your favoritism, yet the thought occurs to me that given the last five years of concentration on secure code creating by Microsoft, ah, this is a good point, actually. Yes. Perhaps the favoritism might be misplaced. I have the advantages you do from MSDN to play with the new uh, operating systems and apps. And I'm suggesting a case can be made that newer software coming from Microsoft is more secure than old stuff. For example, I find IE8 much more... Well, we <laughs> I find IE8 much more secure than Firefox or Safari or the previous IEs. Well, Oops. maybe not. Uh, Windows 7 seems more... Seems is a big word, more secure than Windows XP. It's a thought you'd, I'd like you to mull over because I'm interested in what you think. He's saying essentially that improved techniques in writing software and improved coding tools make it more reliable. Yes, and I thought because this was a different question than the first one, this was also worth looking at one of the things that i have been that i try to be very careful about is to separate 
insecurity from mistakes, from insecurity from policy. My, I, I've, I've really never argued strongly about Microsoft's security mistakes. I mean, we need, we point them out. We're sorry for them. We hope they're going to fix them soon. My argument with Microsoft traditionally has been that they were insecure by policy. They, you know, they had a firewall in XP that was turned off when you installed it. And they said, oh, well, I remember this so well. But yeah, but the, the path most users will arrive at as they're installing XP, they'll come to a dialog box or they'll be offered to have it turned on or something. It, I never bought that, and that was never the case, which is why XP's firewall initially was off all the time, and they were having all these problems with the other problem by policy is services that were running by default, by policy in Windows. So, so my, my traditional arguments with Microsoft is that it, what, these were not mistakes they were making. These were policies. I mean, this wasn't some coder who had a, a, a wrong, you know, a, a wrong check for the end of a buffer in code. This was Microsoft saying, well, it'll be easier for users if these things are turned on by default. It's like, yes. And it will be easier for hackers to get into those users' computers <laughs> if those things are turned on by default. Right. So, so the good news is, Slowly, I mean, with like glacially slowly, Microsoft's security policies have matured at a speed that's so slow I can't and I will never understand why. But it has happened and we're here today rather than where we were, you know, years ago where the firewall is on by default. Services are not on or at least not exposed. And they, they finally offered this notion of local services where things are, where they, they understand things make sense to have on the local area network, but not published out over the internet. So the notion of the, of a service scope where it's a local scope as opposed to a, a global scope of, of access. So that's, that's very much the case. And, and, Certainly also, the focus that Microsoft has had is having an effect. I do agree that, that Microsoft is clearly concerned about security. In, you know, he, he, um, this anonymous listener mentions the, the MSDN, which is the, micro, the so-called Microsoft Developers Network, which, and, which I subscribe to every year. And now when I look at the online help for Windows functions, many of them have new stuff in red where it says, warning, this function has been, is deprecated in favor of the following function, which will perform end of buffer overrun checks for you. It is strongly recommended you not use this function, you use the new one. And so they're, they're creating a, an awareness which is really important. I mean, just doing that, just saying, uh, wait a minute, you know, smoking is bad for your health is on the carton. So it's like, oh, it's going to affect somebody. And, and just warning developers, this function could be bad for your code security. You know, 
make sure you want to use it and why not go check out this one i mean that kind of thing makes a lot of sense and so yes i do agree that 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 microsoft's new stuff is is certainly better than that when their old stuff was new it's not merely uh that though i mean um for instance buffer overflows come uh from using you know not checking bounds and things like that if policies are in place for programmers to do the right thing or even maybe compilers are you know smart enough to prevent that kind of thing doesn't that make them less likely you know the problem is programmers don't want a compiler to be that smart because (laughs) then they're not fun to program right you know, programmers want macho. They want, you know, horsepower. They want access. They want C pointers where you're able to play games at, the, at a low level. The reason C is such a, a, a popular language from the beginning is that it is so dangerous. And, you know, programmers want the danger. There are, there are certainly languages wh- where, wh- which could be created that absolutely will not let you make a mistake. You just don't have the the capability of of those kinds of errors. And those languages exist. They're well understood and well known, and not well used. Mm-hmm. No one wants to use them. Like Ada. It's, yeah. Well. Well. Exactly. I mean, I don't know specifically if Ada um, doesn't allow you to do that, but it's certainly the case that you know heavily interpreted languages just don't give you the flexibility. They're absolutely safe, but they're just not they're not macho yeah yeah <laughs> not macho i like that <laughs> programmers stop being so macho you're causing problems let's talk about the web of trust brandon in indianapolis wonders about such things he says uh, back in episode 214 you guys highlighted uh the google.com slash safe browsing page it's very cool however why wouldn't someone just install web of trust it's over at uh, www.mywot.com. This is new to me. Uh, it's an add-on for Firefox and Internet Explorer that will rank sites based on reported malware and phishing and so on. Rank sites three ways. Green is trusted. Yellow is proceed with caution. Red, don't ever go there. On sites that have malicious ads or pop-ups on them, the add-on will warn you before loading in the pop-up asking you if you're sure and informing you the site is known as a malicious one. Best part is it will rank search results. So you can go to Google and type in free, and it will give you red, yellow, and green rankings on each site. I use this in a couple of ways. One is to stay protected. The other to infect virtual machines with malware and then trying to clean them later. What? (laughs) I think he's saying that this will help you find bad sites so you can go to them and, and get yourself infected. It's like, okay. I've installed it. Okay, it's right. I've installed <laughs> it on my mom's PC as I'm always the one she calls when she has issues. You guys do a wonderful show. I've been listening since episode one. Keep up the good work. Well, I uh, did you try this uh, little plugin? I didn't, but I wanted to address the idea, the concept of webs of trust. It's not something we've ever talked about in all of our episodes, all 224 of them. Well, I guess now we have, so this is episode 224. <laughs> so not in the previous 223 episodes. Right. Um, you know, the concept is, is an interesting one. It's, it has sort of evolved out of the frustration, I think, of, of for-pay trust assertion. You know, the, the, our, you know our, we've often talked about how annoying it is 
that that people have to purchase certificates from a certificate authority that these people who are really doing nothing other than issuing some bits are needing to be paid because what they're doing is some research they're they're performing research every couple of years i've got to go jump through hoops they've got to do telephone calls and i and they check my dnb numbers and things in order for me to get ssl certificates for grc.com i have to prove you know who i am and that i that i'm the 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 webmaster for that domain and 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 we're a real corporation and we've been around and here's our address and you know this information is current so in return for all that they they make an assertion that they stand behind they get some money to run their infrastructure i get my certificate which which then has to be renewed every few years and we go through all this again the there are you know people in the you know, Richard Stallman sort of world who just hate all that idea. And and so they've said, wait a minute, rather than have a single central authority that everyone trusts and that that authority then makes assertions, why not create a web of non-authority, but by having the web be big enough um, and people sort of vouching for each other, then that sort of creates sort of this floating this this floating set of assertions where a whole bunch of people have all agreed that this person is who they say they are and you know and they've made similar assertions they've you know um I'm sure you 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 heard of these web of trust parties where people will get together and and show each other their IDs Sort of verify them informally, yeah, and it's, then say it's for PGP key signing. Yeah, it, that that's a perfect example yeah. where it create. I mean, and and that that's an instance of a web of trust. Um, in this case, for example, where we've got this web of trust server, it's relying on people to report mal, you know, malicious conduct and and sites that they run across as they run across them. And then it uses these add-ons in the browsers to alert people. So the browsers are, are whenever you're trying to go somewhere, the browser's add-on is going to ping back to this myweboftrust.com, mywot.com my server with the URL. Ask that server to represent whether it knows anything, good, bad, or indifferent about the site. And and then present the user with you know a you know green yellow or red based on that. The alternative that he mentions is Google, which is out there spidering the world, literally the entire internet, and and using its own analysis of what sites do to determine whether they they are doing known bad things or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Open DNS is similar. Um, it will it will flag a phishing site. It's, yes. prob- it's not as effective as Google or MyWatt, probably, but yeah. And anyway, so there are other people know, doing I, this. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if if you had a large enough community, if you had people actively feeding back their experiences, then I think the notion of a web of trust for this can function. Um, I've I guess 
if, if there's a way to have both, I just as soon have both. That is, use the Web of Trust plugin and also, you know, have, you know, use Google as my search engine and let Google make sure that it's, that it, that it's looked at these links before, before I have the opportunity to click on them. So I have a chance to, to protect myself. So anyway, I, I wanted to highlight it as an, as an alternative and also to sort of talk about something we never had before, which is no, this notion of sort of a, of a non-central authority, um, um, sort of cross representation of 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 trust as an alternative yeah i i'll have to take a i mean i'm looking at it they they have a decent pedigree they're funded by uh uh open ocean and finnish industry they're, they're from finland but it looks like they do tools i'm not sure I, I, exactly where their system is a community based system even though web of trust implies it is yeah, and in, it does sound like from the description that maybe it's you, you use the the add-on in order to you know send mm. the feedback back. So you probably maybe have the add-on as as, yeah. as the interactive agent. Of course, then you have to trust them because <laughs> you're. <laughs> so it's more than web of trust; it's a leap of faith. I'm going to have myloft.com. Um, number four, John Edwards from Edinburgh, Scotland. He's in password hell. Dear Steve, on uh, SN222, you spoke of an overheard discussion at your local Starbucks. Other coffee outlets are available. The discussion was a company's policy of making their employees change their password on a regular basis. You said this policy makes sense, but it seemed the people in the discussion thought otherwise. They were trying to find all sorts of ways to circumvent it. In fact, kind of ridiculously extreme ways to circumvent it. What do you say to the whole big wide world of Joe Public who have to use passwords and usernames for most all of their everyday life, be it paying bills to numerous firms, banking, email, general shopping, eBay, PayPal, Amazon, even tax, and yes, Twit forums. The list, as we all know, is endless. The last count, I had 65 different sets of passwords and usernames, of which 21 were essential. Now, try and keep all those in your brain, never mind having to periodically change them voluntarily or under pressure. I, I can sympathize, he says, with the people in that overheard conversation. These people, no doubt, have the same problem we all do. And day by day, it just gets worse out there. Where's it going to end up? Steve, I often joke to my friends at the bank. I say, guys, if you give me any more passwords, I'll have to start a wee black book to keep them in. I'm sorry, I didn't say book right. Book. <laughs> a wee black book. All joking aside, Steve, I guess many people do just that. I have a half a dozen bank accounts. Each one needs a telephone inquiry password or an internet banking password and username, and they're all starting to move toward three-part passwords, that is to say three individual passwords and a username. It's a security nightmare. Help! P.S. I now found I can't live without security now. As each week passes by, I become more educated and terrified. <laughs> Keep up the terror, guys! Well, that's what I do. I have I use Evernote, and um, I keep uh, all my passwords in there, and I encrypt them. Yep, and Leo, you know, I'm still using a, 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 we talked about this a couple times, an offline Palm Pilot sitting, you know, off to the side here. It is, it's by my right hand anytime I need it. I, I can put in a few characters because the little, the little um, notepad has a very nice search and it instantly finds, like I, I, I remember that I, I wanted to know what my Chase um, 
uh, I have like Chase online access to, to my main credit cards and I'd forgotten what my Chase password was. Oh, yeah, and, you know, and it was, yeah. it was something that I wanted to make sure was going to be, you know, very, very safe. And, you know, so I put in CHA and hit find and bang, there it finds it. And I look at it, go, okay. And, you know, transcribe it onto the web browser and then I'm, I'm logged in. Now, do you I mean, sync that to anything or is it just on that palm? I have, n- I do not sync it to anything. So if I anything don't... should happen to that palm, what are you going to do? <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, it will sync itself to an SD card because it's got an SD card reader. And so I'm able to copy it to an SD oh, card. All right. All right. But I don't want to sync it to a PC because then all that stuff is in the PC where it's it's then no longer offline. Well, it's that's now- the, that's the problem I have with Evernote because it's a, you know the convenience of it is it's on my iPhone, it's on all my computers, and it's in the cloud. But the but it's risky. Of course, I do encrypt, but you have to trust that they're encryption. And yeah, by the way. My encryption password, it's just the same. It's one password. So in effect, there's one password to get all that data. Yeah, and you know, if I were to start again, I would probably do something like that. At this point, since I've this sort of has been my incremental solution for many years, and it works, and it's it's as secure as I can, you know, I mean, it's it's not universal. I don't have it on my um, portable phone and, 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 and other things I will not stick it in my phone because we were just talking about problems with iPhones. So, I mean, it, this is a dilemma. And I like John's note because he just sort of says, you know, this is really a problem. And, and part of me thinks that one way or another, eventually this will be solved. I, it, it's, it's hard to guess what the solution will be. I mean, it's hard to know what the solution will be. Maybe it'll just be solved incrementally. It may be that will you know we we've talked about solutions like like things like Verisign where they offer you know a a a one time password based on a credit card with a battery in it or the football that is based on time and so you you loop through third parties it may be that that ultimately these sorts of things which are still nascent which are which are still not universally adopted will begin to see some convergence around a solution and you know or or they are our favorite little gizmo um uh the kindle uh the the the, the usb um the U, the usb gizmo i can't believe i've forgotten what it is now um i've forgotten it too i know what you're talking about stina's thing yeah stina's yubikey yubikey yes <laughs> it might be <laughs> the, 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 something like that makes you know absolute sense right um so you know i just sort of wanted to say yes john i feel your pain i and i feel the pain of this poor guy that we talked about two weeks ago who was you know deliberately jumping through hoops so as not to be forced to change his password because you know he so much didn't want to and and the the bad thing is we know most people most non-listeners of this podcast are using one password for everything oh, yeah. or just a couple, you know, and, and they're vulnerable to that being, to, to that getting, being, you know, losing control of it for, to it getting away from them. Um, but and there, really- and there are choices. There's like key pass, um, you know, there's a robo form and one password on the windows and Mac respectively. I mean, there are tools to do this. Yeah, but but I but 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 the people who use them are more sophisticated, frankly. Yep, 
my mom doesn't use a password manager. No. And, and you know, we talk a little bit. There, there, there are some interesting questions this week. I, uh, we're we're going to be talking briefly about this notion of Internet access as a human right and and how we feel about that. And that there's this notion that that as a consequence of pressure on us we're being pushed onto the internet there i mean it's it's necessary almost for more and more things that we want to do during the day unfortunately authentication is is you know comes hand in hand with that we need to be able to identify ourselves in a secure way and i mean there i really see this as a huge disconnect a huge problem which is burdening people for which there isn't you know there isn't a unified solution there isn't one solution that works for everybody because it's not all pulled together yet and somehow it needs to be you know this is the kind of thing that that stina and yubikey and verisign and and these kinds of companies are saying they're they're out there waving their arms around saying we solved the problem we solved the problem except they haven't until everyone uses them. Right. So, you know, and, and we've talked about also the problem of having like a, chi- a key chain full of dongles of non-unified solutions. That's not a solution either. No. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is. And so I'm glad he, I'm glad he wrote because I certainly hope we didn't come off as unsympathetic to the, these guys. Uh, I didn't really like the way they were solving it, but I mean, I share yeah. their pain. Doug Smith, Albany, New York, worries when human rights become inhuman rights. Hi, Stephen Leo. A couple episodes ago, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, I recall you and Leo discussing a move afoot in some places to establish Internet access as a basic human right. My take on your comments was that you both were leaning in favor of that idea, basically pointing out there is much that people miss out on if they don't have access. While I don't dispute the idea, I must say my gut reaction was more a fear rather than comfort because I believe that it should be a basic human right to be off the grid as well. There's a difference between a right and a requirement, but all right, well, let's, we'll go on. I don't think anyone should be obligated to have Internet connectivity to fulfill their civic duties. They should not be required to have an email address. They should not be required to have a cell phone. I'm with you on all of this. Mm. They should not be required to vote electronically over a network. They should not be required to submit their taxes electronically, and they should not be required to have Internet access at home in order for their children to attend public schools. I'm much more afraid of the ways government would abuse Internet connectivity when it is deemed to be available to everyone than I am of the consequences of people not having access. (laughs) The fact that not everyone has access means that government is still responsible for communicating with us even if we don't own a computer or have an ISP contract. Just another perspective I'd like to hear represented. As always, thanks for the great podcast. You guys are the best, Doug Smith. What do you think? I really do see his point. Um, I've been, as as a non-parent, I, I hear stories from other parents um, of like the way papers are submitted now. Even at the high school level, um, you can't submit papers handwritten. They have to be printed from a computer. Um, you can, and, and one of the reasons is that they're put through a central clearinghouse, an online database to look for forgery or for plagiarism. For, yeah. Yeah. for plagiarism. And, and and when my when I when my sister told me that my niece and nephew were doing this, it's like, huh? That's I mean, that was news to me. And so so 
it seems to me that's a good example of you have to be using a computer. You have to have access to a computer. Um, and I think that's what he means. Where you know uh, they should not be required to have internet access at home in order for their children to attend public schools. I mean, it's it's the way things are done now. And I know that uh, one one of the gals that I hang out with at Starbucks in the morning is a school teacher, and and her she sort of she's the science teacher for her elementary school, and sort of has taken up the responsibility of educating the other teachers in using the web services that are available and. It's not possible now not to use that sort of technology as a teacher. And, and she posts things on her site, which she assumes students and parents will have access to. And the sense is you, you have to be online now in order to be functional in, in a public school. And, I completely agree with him. I know I heard you chiming in when he talks about email and cell phones. I'm annoyed now when I'm filling out a form and they and some random form line wants my email address. You know, I protect my email address. I don't want spam. I don't, I want control over that. And the idea that that you know this is the way I'm going to be contacted. I I don't. I would like the choice. And so. I, I really understand what he says. I'm, I'm not sure that I intended us to sound like positive or or uh, encouraging of the notion that internet access was was being defined as a human right. I just thought it was interesting in in the sort of sort of like wow that strikes me as a big deal as a significant thing. Not, I, I'm of not the opinion. Small. I'm of the opinion. It is. It is absolutely is a human right, and the point being that everybody should have it available, not required. Although, what if we take what he just wrote and we put in telephone or snail mail or uh, television? I mean, part of what he's saying makes sense to us because these are new technologies. But you 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 wouldn't really. Uh, be puzzled by somebody who said, what's your phone number? And then had difficulty dealing with you because you didn't have a phone. We've accepted that as being kind of ubiquitous. Yeah, that's true. If, if someone actually had no cell phone and no home phone. No way of reaching them by no, phone. No phone. That's their right. It's their privilege. But as a result, there are going to be some consequences to, in, in the modern world. Yeah, and uh, because that's an older technology, we kind of accept that. We understand that, and there are some hermits who don't want a phone, and that's fine. You can do that, but expect to have a little more difficulty in your life. And I think that's all that's going to happen here. Is is, but it, what's very important is, and I think it's it's akin to electric electricity. I often liken it to the rural electrification programs of the Great Depression, where mm. there were people in this country in rural areas who had. Act, no access to electricity and it was deemed a priority by the government and it happened to help the in the depression employ people with programs like the tennessee valley authority right. to electrify these rural areas because you know rights a strong word you know we can argue about what's a right but it's certainly something everybody ought to have access to is electricity and i think the internet is very similar to that now you don't have to have electricity. You don't have to have a phone. You don't have to have the internet. But if, but you should have it if you want it. <laughs> you know, you should have the right to have it if you want it. 
Yes, you 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 should be able to get it, and it should be affordable. Yes, it's not it's free. Nobody's saying free. Affordable. But there's lifeline phone service that's subsidized by all of us who have phones, so that people who can't afford a phone at least you know can't afford a full price phone can at least get lifeline service because it's recognized that a telephone is a vital. Uh, important lifeline, you know, at least for nine one one, if nothing else. Well, so and there I think are, it's like there, that. There are public utility or or public service um, opportunities for for web connection, also like public libraries, where you're able to use a computer. And thanks to web based technologies, you could have an email address on on Google Mail or Hotmail um, that gives you you know that gives you an email address, even though you don't have your own. Your own internet connection and, and computers and right. things. So there are ways to solve the problem. They do that, in fact, they, at least uh, here in California for uh, homeless people. They have programs to give them phone numbers and uh, and email because it's hard to apply for a job if you don't have somewhere you can be reached. Right. Uh, and you know the idea being if you provide this for these people, uh, maybe they can get work and they can get off the streets. But they, you know, it's very hard to get off the streets when you're living on the streets if you've got nothing. Right. So I, I, I don't think anybody's saying that th- there's an equivalent between a right and a requirement. I'm just saying that I think, and I think it's very important that we recognize Internet access is increasingly important to a participation in, uh, in our modern world. Yeah, and I do like your analogy with the notion of, you know, telephone, for example, or even electricity. I mean, yeah. it's, it's uh, yeah, I it's, think that... It's easy for us with new technologies because, you know, I mean, you know, well, we lived without a computer, you and I, (laughs) when we were young men. We lived without email. We survived. But times have changed. I wouldn't expect my kids to do so. Although uh, I'm reading Jerry Pornell's uh, book uh, right now, Lucifer's Hammer, about a a comet hitting the the earth and losing, you know, basically civilization's gone. And you really realize how dependent we are on technology. And I mean, there's there's not there's only I don't know how much 30 days of food in the U.S. Uh, you know, we all live pretty almost almost hand to mouth, really. Wow. <laughs> so uh, should something horrible happen? And by the way, he also raises the issue in the book. Very few of us actually know how any of this works. You get in your car and you drive around, but we had no idea how it works. It's a really good point, too. <laughs> how much of the detailed knowledge yeah. required to recreate the technology is gone gone yeah uh you know we're just we're we're living in a in this house of cards let's hope it it all stays okay here hey joe pearlberg from green bay wisconsin has our next question he has some insights on uh, the fingerprints that we've talked about in the past required for uh checks at the bank Stephen leo is listening to the latest episode of security now i have some more information regarding the taking of fingerprints when cashing checks I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and of the many banks I went to around town, nearly all of them, all of them required a fingerprint to cash a check for a non-account holder. Also, I even noticed some retailers that asked for a fingerprint, whoa, when writing a check over, the, over a certain amount to purchase items. Wow, retailers now have fingerprint devices? I completely agree with your stance on the issue, but I thought you should know that this is by no means an isolated incident. I was told by several banks this is a new measure to protect against check fraud, but that it doesn't necessarily stem from 9-11, which is what I thought. Uh, thanks for putting out an excellent show. You know, I guess I'm sort of out of touch with checks. I'm, <laughs> I'm not a check user. I use, use checks. My, yeah, I use my credit card as cash and then, you know, pay the, pay the balance every month. So it works for me. 
um, the, the card company is not real happy with me because they don't make any, any money from me. I guess they get a percentage though of of all of the money right. that I run through the card. So right. so they're they're making it there. Um, but I thought that was interesting feedback. The the problem, of course, is that you know you mentioned whoa you know retailers are taking fingerprints now. The problem is we've storage is cheap, data transit is virtually free. Um, and the technology for reading fingerprints went from, you know, once upon a time getting ink on you that no one would want to do to, <laughs> you know, sticking your thumb on a, on a, on an optical scanner. Yeah. Well, the tech, the the cost of doing that has just dropped to nothing. So I have one on my new Dell computer, and actually I kind of like it. It has a pre-boot authentication, so it's kind of like the uh, BIOS password. When you open the thing up before Windows even does anything, you have to scan your password. And I kind of like that. Yeah, well, I have it on all of my laptops, yeah. uh, not not my Macs, but both of my um, Lenovo's, and you know, and it's the the drive is encrypted. It, the right. the the fingerprint is down in the TPM, the Trusted Platform TPM, Module. That's right. Yeah, nothing nothing can get to it, and you know, it it turns on and it says, "Okay, let's see who you are." And so I swipe my 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 finger over the scanner, and it looks for the match and finds it, unlocks the drive, and then it can boot. But you know, until I do that, it's locked up tight. Oh, no, it it is. See, there I have no problem with it because I'm controlling the information. It's it's in the TPM, and, and it's, you know, it's it's my laptop recognizing me. The idea, though, I mean, I just oh my god, that the idea that retailers are Sucking in people's fingerprints. <laughs> we're, we're in for a fall. This is this is not going to end well. <laughs> I like it. It's like a, like your mom saying, "This is all going to end in tears." This is not, <laughs> not going to end, end well. well. Joe Doward or Dorward from Berkshire, England, brings us the Head Shaker of the Week report. Steve, I just attempted to log out from my Hotmail account. Here's the error message I got. Sign out failed. We could not sign you out because your browser seems to be blocking third-party cookies. Close all browser windows to sign out. To prevent this error in the future, you must enable third-party cookies by changing your browser settings. Thank you. <laughs> That's the most backwards thing I have ever heard of. Well, I can't I, even think of why, right? Because no. you're in Hotmail. You're, you, this is first-party cookies they want to set. Who's setting a third-party cookie? And it's to leave. It's not, it's to, not, even... it's not to sign in. It's not like like they're they're using some third party authentication server. I mean, apparently they are, but they're trying to do that to say goodbye somehow. And so they're saying, well, the only we you know, unfortunately, we cannot log you out because you're blocking you're blocking third party cookies. So we're which means we're sending your browser something. To, to cause it to get something from another server, and because you're not sending a cookie back, that other server can't recognize who you are, and and that's preventing us from accepting your logout. It's like okay, so then they're saying close all browser windows. So that I mean that at least is good. That means they're using session cookies somewhere rather than persistent cookies. So. Losing your session cookies, what happens when you cl close all your browser windows. So that's good. But then they're saying, just so you don't have this problem in the, in the future, 
turn on third-party cookies so that we can log you out next time. I don't know. It just, I, I got the biggest kick out of that. It's like, okay. Well, who knows what uh, what Hotmail is doing. You see nowadays a lot of uh, sites that require third-party cookies in a lot of um, ways. I use a, um, uh, a service called Feedly that uh, is a f- kind of a homepage service I really like. for. Uh, it gives me Google Reader and my homepage in Firefox. But uh, for obvious reasons, it needs third-party cookies because it's on the Feedly site, but it's getting it from Google Reader. I mean, it's just you're seeing more and more of this. But 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 as we've talked about before, and I encourage people to listen to earlier shows, third-party cookies are a way that an, information can leak from the page that you're on to uh, somebody else and can even yes. leak across site. Yes, and so I would say that awareness of them is is all that we would really hope people have, and then you know. Uh, arrange uh, arrange a solution that works for you. Now you treat all se- all cookies as session cookies, right? You say they're only alive through the session, or is that you that does that? Yes, um, the way it's a nice setting in Firefox that allows me to to normally discard all cookies, but when I'm at a site where I do want to be remembered, then I use a just a simple little tool, I and mean, and it's it's. Simple to the point where you don't even need it. If you went into Firefox's UI, you could say, trust this site. But it, it allows me just, it's a little tiny C. C stands for cookie. And I'm able to click on it and just say, like when I'm, when I'm on Amazon or eBay or PayPal, you know, a site that I care about where I'm going to be coming back in the future. I'd like them to remember who I am. I just say, yep, remember that cookie. And so... It creates an exception yeah. to the normal policy of discarding them all the time, and then they're persistent. So it's again, it's it's an opt-in rather than an opt-out approach. Right. And uh, Euchre po- po- points out in our uh, chat room that uh, the reason Hotmail would do it is because you're on Hotmail.com, but there are other Microsoft.com uh, and maybe even Live.com sites involved. And so those would show up as third-party cookies, even they're all from Microsoft. They're different domain names, right? Right. So that I guess I guess it makes sense that they can do that. Our last question, Mister Gibson, comes <laughs> comes to this us. Is, this is so sad. It, <laughs> I haven't read it yet. I'm just, I, but I, but I see the title. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Okay. Stephen Rochester, New York, brings us the. Sad biometric stupidity story of the week. <laughs> I love these. This is of the ilk of the knuckle at Disneyland, right? Oh, if only. <laughs> Worse. Hey, Stephen Leo, I just finished listening to episode 222 with a story about a man who couldn't cash his wife's check without giving up his fingerprint. We are just talking about that. In early September, out of a Bank of America in Tampa, the same thing happened. The really sad part is the bank wouldn't make an exception even though the man had no arms and therefore, no fingerprints to give. This is the story at ABC Local News. Unbelievable. Man with no arms denied check cashing. A man born without arms is upset that a bank would not allow him to cash a check without having a thumbprint. Steve Valdez said a Bank of America branch in downtown Tampa, Florida, would not allow him to cash a check from his wife last week. He wasn't, you know, an account holder, so as usual, he asked for a thumbprint. He's got prosthetic arms, but there's no fingerprint. He presented two forms of ID, still was denied. 
He said a bank manager told him he could either come back to the bank with his wife or open an account himself. Bank of America spokeswoman Nicole Nastasi says the bank has apologized to Valdez. She said the bank should have offered alternative requirements if an individual is not able to give a thumbprint. I wonder what happens at Disneyland to the guy. That's just, yeah. just oh, that's... Isn't that amazing? I think he has a lawsuit uh, under the uh, Americans with Disability Act, to be honest. I would imagine. I mean, yeah. here's a policy which obviously wasn't well thought through. Yeah. And it's like, okay. And well, and, and so here's the problem. As, as we move forward and the need for a fingerprint becomes ubiquitous, what does he do? Right. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Not everybody so, has a fingerprint. Not everybody has one to give, even if you wanted to give one. Sorry. Yeah, and believe yeah. me, I'm sure our listeners know, resist with your last breath. Yeah. You know, just like, I mean, the, again, the idea that, that retailers have, have fingerprint scanners, I mean, it, it's a reason to use a credit card. Well, you know what's next? DNA. Everybody probably, can give DNA in some form. You're probably right. So yeah, here, li- lick this swab, yeah. and we'll, we'll yeah, give uh, me a hair. You know, <laughs> I mean, seriously, I think that we're we we already. And by the way, the implications of that are terrifying, Ooh, boy. Because after we've got the then genome you got sequence, genome. exactly. Yes, th- th- then it's like, oh well, you know, don't worry. We'll, we're we're going to check out your health factors in the future and see what problems you're prone to. Oh. No, it gets very big brothery pretty quickly. I just got uh, word that I am going to be allowed to participate in a very interesting project that um, a geneticist named George Church does or is doing. That you're probably going to say, Leo, stop right now. Don't do it. He is at Harvard. And um, he is doing, uh, let me see what they call this. He's at the Harvard Medical School. And he's a professor of uh, genetics, professor of health sciences and technology. He's got a project called the uh, Human, I'm sorry, the Personal Genome Project, in which he asks (laughs) PGP, PGP, (laughs) he asks um, people to not only give up their genome, you volunteer for this, but also to answer extensive questionnaires about your phenotype. Yeah, medical records in order to match them up. Yep. Reason being, if somebody is willing to do this, and more people, if enough people are willing to do this, there's huge value yep. because you can say, well, look, here's a here's a here's a gene uh, uh, site that seems to be correlated to uh, obesity. Yes, but you can't do that unless you got the two. So um, Esther Dyson has volunteered to do this. Um, a number of his colleagues uh, at Harvard. Um, and, uh, I said, I, you know, I'm already a public figure, so I can't be harmed at this point by this kind of stuff. I self-insure because I have my own business, so I don't have to worry about discrimination by employer or an insurer. Um, so I volunteered to do this. They, Mm -hmm. by the way, all data is published, including your name, because they say we can't guarantee full anonymity. So rather than try to guarantee full anonymity, that's, we I, tell I you up front, we're going to publish it. I think that's very cool. I mean, if that's, I, I think I take my hat off to that. I think that's exactly the right way to do it. Yeah, just don't promise something you can't guarantee. Yeah. 
however, you could see the huge uh, societal value to people volunteering to do this. They hope to get 100,000 volunteers. Um, yeah, anyway, I volunteered. One... We're going to interview him on uh, Futures in Biotech and talk about it. I'm, and I realize, I understand the risks. I mean, I understand maybe better than me- most because of doing this show with you for so long. But I think it's worthwhile. Yeah, and that, I mean, cer- certainly this kind of information could be used for good. And, of course, it could also be used for discrimination. Yeah. Which is, you know, the, the dark side of that Absolutely. is, is, you know, is... Well, you know, I could be denied insurance. I could be denied employment, but I'm of an age now and, uh, you know, and my business is, is my own. So I feel like relatively protected. I mean, 10 years from now, I could be uh, on the street looking for work, but, uh, I'm willing to take that chance. And I think it is, there is such a benefit. Anyway, we're going to talk to him. I think it's very interesting. Very cool. They don't do your whole, they can't do your whole genotype. Uh, they do a portion of your genotype, but it is, um, you know, it's very interesting, I think. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense that it needs to be voluntary because this is super oh, yeah. sensitive information. And, they have a very all, extensive informed consent document, as you might imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you have to pass tests and so forth before you can participate. I think cool. it's very, very interesting. People want to know more about it. It's personalgenomes.org. Uh, and I don't know if they're looking for... a. Uh, volunteers from the public yet or not i know that was the plan yeah i guess i guess they are it's a very interesting idea steve i really appreciate your time as always and your insights and it's so valuable to talk to you and i thank you for doing this show as i know everyone else does people can go to steve's website grc.com gibsonresearchcorporation.com that's where all of the freebies like shields up decombobulator, shoot the messenger, some great security stuff, perfect paper passwords, live. Also, 16 kilobit versions of the show. Thanks to Steve, by the way, who's taken over the editing of that. Do you do that yourself, or do you get somebody to do it with you? Or? No, I do it myself. You you drop the file on the Dropbox, I get it in the in the later afternoon, I edit it down, and uh, and post it for Elaine to yeah. do the transcriptions. That's very nice. Steve pays That's for great. the transcriptions, too. So this is his commitment to you. So, so transcriptions, 16 kilobit versions, uh, and, of course, the full version and all the show notes at grc.com. And while you're there, help Steve out a little bit. Help a brother out. Pick up a copy of Spinrite. Help yourself out. The world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. It may come in handy. Yes, it may. It and this may. is our Thanksgiving episode. So happy Thanksgiving to everyone, yeah. those who observe Thanksgiving. That's right. This will ship on Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah. So uh, if if the turkey didn't put you to sleep, maybe we did. <laughs> if, the <trip> to <laughs> fan, if the trip to fan doesn't get you. <laughs> so security now, Mike. Um, great, Steve. Thanks. Have a great thanks. Are you going to, to mom's for Thanksgiving or staying home? I'm going to have dinner down here in Southern California with a bunch of friends. And I, I do mom's on Christmas. That's great. No, not a ham sandwich, I hope, on, on turkey day. <laughs> nope. Okay. <laughs> get some actual turkey in. Thanks, Leo. See you next time on Security Now. Security Now.